Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and our Weekend Sports Cars episode powered by Graham Goodwin, powered by Cooper Tires, also powered by the Justice Brothers, and powered, I'm hoping, by a little bit of sleep after back-to-back 24-hour races, my friend. Uh, not a whole lot, mate. Good, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. It's been a one heck of a couple of weeks. Back-to-back 24-hour races, not recommended, I have to tell you. Just me, uh, 33 drivers, I think, that made that trip, and 230,000 close German alcoholic friends. <laughs> well, we can also announce here that Graham and the Daily Sports Car Crew, after crushing 48 hours of race coverage in a span of, what, nine days, 10 days you're now going to be switching the entire company's format to drag racing so four seconds or less of competition will be the new format daily dragster.com coming to an interweb a dark web near you my friend we have about an hour and five hour and ten minutes for this episode based on prior commitments i heartily suggest we begin rocking and rolling right now as the official chooser of categories on the weekend sports cars. Where should we go first? Well, we've got a, a, a smattering of questions about the Nürburgring 24 hours. So let's kick it off there because that was indeed the the latest uh, of the, the big races we have uh, been attending. Uh, and we'll kick it off with uh, the three or four questions we've got on that front, if, if you don't mind. Let me those up for me, MP. Throw them your way. You were there. I was not. Jordan Hopwood, first up on the. June 25th episode here. Why are GT4 cars spread out across so many classes at the Nürburgring 24? There were GT4 cars in SP8T, SP8, SP10, and the KTMs had their own class, and the Porsche Caymans were spread across some other classes. Is there a reason why all GT GT4 cars can't be in one class? Uh, there's a, the, there was a very simple answer. They're not all GT4s. So the KTM's uh, and the Caymans, for instance, were not up to a GT4 uh, spec. They were somewhat lower powered spec. SP10 is the class for FI uh, or SRO GT4 cars. SP8 and SP8T uh, that included the new Aston Martins, which of course won SP8T, uh, the 37 car. Uh, they were not too full. Um, GT4 spec, actually an enhanced spec, more power, which gave them more straight line speed, but rather oddly, uh, actually less wing. Uh, so actually they were capable of going by a GT3 car on the Dottigo, and that's a, another question a little later uh, in this one, but, uh, but, but were not capable of sticking with a GT3 car through the fast turns because they didn't have the downforce. So the answer is the only cars that were to full SP10 spec, uh, GT4 spec rather, were SP10. The others chose to operate their cars at a different specification because they felt actually that would suit the race more or they felt they had a good chance in those classes. Next question from Josh Ridgen. And I do realize that we said we had about an hour, hour 10. This might take the entire time <laughs> if we're not careful. Josh says, I watched the 24 hours in Nürburgring over the weekend. Great race. Graham, could you explain the class structure? It seemed very, quote, different to what I'd seen in other races. Uh, is there yeah, an explanation? Well, <laughs> is there any logical way to do this? 
There is, um, and it's actually based on the VLN system. VLN system has, I think, maximum potential 33 classes uh, across the near 200 cars that would operate. We had rather fewer than that, 156 starters. In fact, the lowest since I've been covering that race uh, for something over a decade. Uh, but I seem to recall we had 23 different classes covered in the race. There are three subclasses. Uh, SP for specials, V for production cars, cup classes, and then added on to that the TCR class for TCR touring cars. SP are effectively racing... Uh, built for racing so it's you know yes they are going to be kind of based on road cars for the most part but the the classification is based on displacement in other words how big the engine is with the exception of sp9 which is for uh, the fi gt3 spec cars v are production cars they must keep the production engine in that car they must have the mandatory safety equipment but other than that are pretty much stock and then you've got a variety of cup classes and that's where the ktms that jordan was asking came in they've got their own one make series uh, we have in previous years had a one make series for the v6 uh, that's the class not the engine uh, total gt86s we've got one for the little caymans which is run by monsai racing and we've got one for the bmw m240i's so cup v sp and in the v classes and the sp classes it's based on engine displacement I love the fact that there was also an IndyCar class. There was a lawnmower racing class. Slot cars were also allowed to compete last weekend. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, this collects trick. Not allowed the other Porsche stuff. Yeah. Uh, that, you've got to wait. And the only reason those are allowed is they know that I can't pronounce that correctly. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Tom Firth, who says, How did Graham and the Daily Sports Car team view Manti Racing not competing on the final lap of the Nürburgring 24? It was a bit of an odd one. They did say that there was a uh, puncture. It may well have been the case. It may well have been the kind of puncture warning. You don't want to risk, therefore, not completing the race. Um, but disappointing. We have seen the race uh, decided in a couple of years past uh, with a pass on the final lap. It looked like we could get close to that, although in truth, it looked to me like the Audi had the legs on the Porsche for that final lap. Extraordinary finish. Uh, and an extraordinary way to lose the race. Uh, for those who didn't watch it, Montai's Porsche dominated utterly, uh, only to receive a five-and-a-half-minute penalty for uh, non-compliance with a safety zone. There were some, what, 52 kilometers an hour over the prescribed 120 kilometers an hour limit. That's on a scale that is pre published and is available to the teams means five minutes 32 seconds penalty and that uh, mistake by Lawrence Van Tura, I'm afraid cost that team the race uh, without a shadow of a doubt that said consider this if they did have a puncture they'd have lost the race anyway on the final lap that's a great point Sean at Sean MP says from a distance it sounds like the organizers are getting more concerned about GT3 speeds at the ring do you think there's a breaking point where GT3 is no longer welcome in the event? Well, remember, we've had uh, real traumas for the Nürburgring in recent years, particularly after the accident that befell Yamadbra uh, just a few years ago, where a car ended up in the crowd, a VLN race, and sadly a member of the public was killed. That led to some sweeping safety changes. Since then, we've had all sorts of 
other methods to try to reel in the spiraling abilities of these GT3 cars. And on this occasion, what we've got is a highly unpopular um, 5% or so restriction on power. That does mean that some rather – and it, by the way, only applies to the SP9 cars – uh, but what that means is that their, their straight line speed is pretty severely restricted. Um, it doesn't mean that the lap times are coming down all that much. We saw lap times within a second of the overall race lap record. So the teams through tire development, through other development, are finding ways around those restrictions. Do I think the level of comfort with those cars is getting thin? Uh, I think in certain instances, it is. They are remarkably fast around there. Look at the times you're getting from effectively a production-based GT3 car and compare that, you know, albeit on tracks that have had different, uh, slightly different formats and uh, with different tire technology to some real purebred racing machinery in the past. These are, by any measure, remarkably quick lap times so let's wait and see what the future brings i do fear that the uh, the days of uh, you know uh, being allowed to uh, have these races in the way that we have for the last decade or more uh, are beginning to wane and i'd say this much if you want to go and see something truly extraordinary in motorsport book it get to see this i'm not sure how much longer we're going to have it the overriding point i would say sean is you have the perfect collision of things that don't work in modern racing norms. Big, treacherous, high-speed track, way too many cars, and a pro-am driver model where you have, oh my goodness, there's Lamar winners in the factory, name the car, and then there's a bunch of guys who are way overweight, don't exercise in some little slow piddly shitbox who are wolfing down cigarettes between pit stops and surprise they're out there meandering around in their car that has 25% the power or whatever the exact number of some of these GT3 beasts and they do not have the experience, they do not have the awareness, they do not have enough of anything to safely be on track for 24 hours with full monster pros in gt3 cars and although i don't smoke as someone who's too big and doesn't exercise enough i could just as easily climb into one of those cars types of slower cars and go compete locally here and it would be a lot of fun the difference being is i would never think of entering a race even if i was allowed to with absolute beasts in hideously fast cars on a track that is known for hurting, if not potentially killing people, uh, when collisions of talent and preparation meet at very inopportune times. So I don't view, Sean, the GT3 cars as being the problem. What I think, since we have more of these cars and more entries wanting to come every year from a variety of manufacturers and even the independent teams that run them, might be more a case of needing to uh, run fewer classes, fewer of the pro-am cars, some of the smaller, slower cars, because it's that big separation in speed where if it's not a collision between fast car, slow car, it's fast car getting balked by slow car, then the innate need of a racing driver to try and catch up and do higher risk things to catch the person that they were just chasing. Just a, 
there's a something going on here that is not a surprise but if you want to keep having these big showy fun manufacturer type cars and drivers show up i think it might be more a case graham could be more a case of do we need to make this more pro than am or at least do what we can to reduce that both the driving aptitude gap and just the raw speed gap from fastest to slowest We've had we've had elements of that. The, the ring permit that's come in in recent years has made an impact on that. Uh, in the last decade, uh, we've had some of the much lower cars, the kind of one-litre cars are gone now, so it's roughly two litres and above that you can race, uh, or with the turbo equivalents at uh, at the Nürburgring 24 hours. But, yeah, certainly the, t- the closing speeds of some of these, these cars with some of these drivers is terrifying. Um, and I'm not sure that actually a 5% power uh, reduction has actually had the the net effect that they would have liked to have done. I hope we do continue to race the Nürburgring 24 hours. It is a simply mind-blowing event. Um, but, yeah, there's something about the uh, hopefully not literal collision of cultures, factory and club culture um, that at the moment – it does feel pretty edgy. It really does. Let's, let's hope they can find a solution to it because it really is unique and it really is special. And oddly, it comes to what the final question we've got on the N24 uh, from your good mate, Ron Terpstra. Yep. Who asks you, what is with the cult following for the Opal Manta? I want to know the secret password to the Manta Society. He says, I really don't know the backstory here. Uh, it's quite a simple one. So the Opel Manta, um, if you're in the US, uh, Opel for many years, now owned by Peugeot Citroen, uh, but was General Motors. And the Opel Manta, um, a sports coupe from the 1980s into the early 1990s um, for, from General Motors, uh, you know, working man's coupe, working man's sports coupe, that car has been competing in Vietnam competition since God was a lad. Uh, amongst the drivers and the team that prepare it is one Volker Strychek, who for many, many years was Opel's director of motorsports, continues to take a huge amount of pride. It is simply a cult car. There is, I'm trying to think, MP, I don't know whether or not you could come up with one, but I can't think of anything else in world motorsport quite like that, that sits within a class structure that welcomes that level of variety, but is just so different to the norm. should say, by the way, with the problems the Manta had uh, on the race, it's going to be two, two other, as it turns out, class-leading cars, whilst, by the way, leading its own class. That took away from Volker Strychek the opportunity to take a 15th, 1-5, 15th class which would have been one short of the record. So what is it about? It's about enthusiasm. It's about a really lovely atmosphere. When that car was in trouble, literally everybody had the opportunity in that garage and in garages BMW Team Schnitzer, for instance, whose car was out, uh, dropped what they were doing and came to help to get the car back out. It is a simply glorious thing. And by the way, that car is not the problem in terms of the closing speeds because those guys are fully lit and fully aware of uh, you know of the of the uh, what they need to do with the, the quick cars coming. Uh, they were unlucky to get tagged between the two cars that they did. Where shall we go next, my friend? We have categories. Oh, we have categories. Well, I think uh, we've we've been through uh, the the Le Mans twenty four hours. It's time for the next uh, of the IMSA uh, North American Endurance 
uh, championship race, isn't it? We've got the six hours of the Glen coming at the weekend, and we've got a healthy batch that I'm now going to serve up to you like a completely back-to-form Andy Murray, um, who's British now because he's quite good again, not Scottish because he's losing. Um, <laughs> and we're going to start to... Uh, we're we're going to tell that to Dario. He's going to love that. <laughs> we're going to start to serve these one up. The first one comes from Nate Detweiler. Could IMSA adopt hybrid subclasses like WC did? More hybrid power, less horsepower, vice versa, to appease manufacturers like Ford that are happy with the proposed hybrid levels. I guess he's talking here, isn't he? Yeah, maybe I don't know. I I've already written this story. It won't come as a surprise to many because Ford's Mark Rushbrook alluded to such things during Le Mans. But I have indeed heard that we are going just recently heard confirming words. Not just the rumored we think there might, there could be a DPI coming from Ford. We've been talking about that forever, but I have just very recently heard uh, enough confirming voices to believe we are going to have something coming from Ford. I think, and this is the thing that I'm going or have written about and will hopefully get out here in the next day or two. Um, I don't know about going anywhere beyond DPI 2.0 at this point in time, Nate, in terms of uh, the allowance of hybrids. I just don't think IMSA is ready to make that big of a step in more than one class right now. I do think that when the next, whatever we're going to have, that's called GTLM in the U.S., if it's still strictly GTE Pro-based or if, like we've done with DPI, made an American version of the ACO slash FIA rules there. I do think that once we get to the next set of GTLM rules, though, I think hybridization might end up being on the plate just because I think manufacturers by that point, I think we're going to have enough who are considering such a thing or might want to have such a thing. So I know that might not address the core question up front, but I just think at least here, IMSA has not been a let's do a whole bunch of things at once type organization uh, in its rebirth. It's really been a, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it one area, see how it's received, then look to possibly integrate it elsewhere. If there's a call for it by either entrants or manufacturers. That uh, nets neatly in with the next question, which is Douglas Holtzman saying with stories about Ford wanting more of a hybrid aspect to the new DPI regs. EMSA originally discussing a smaller hybrid. Privateers possibly already being towards the limits of their budgets because they run into the same issues, WC. And I think that's that's neatly kind of summed up. Um, rather more directed at the events uh, the coming weekend, Matt Niedert says, hasn't seen or heard of any information from IMSA this year regarding patriotic liveries for the sale in six hours. He's seen Paul Miller's uh, Paul Miller Racing um, is doing one. We've seen that one done. Delhi Sports Car Racer already. Should we expect others? Cars run off transporters in two days. Surprise, we haven't heard much from the teams. I believe Matt also gave us a pronunciation guide that he prefers Nidert compared to Niedert, but uh, I could be wrong. I read many things these days and retain very little, so that's entirely my fault. Matt, I can tell you I, that... I will apologize, yes. Well, 50 push-ups right now, or I could get it wrong, and then I'm going to struggle to do three of the 50. I would say yes, 
would also say since we're recording this here on a tuesday at 1209 p.m california this is around the time when they start dropping rather frequently so i think we're going to see plenty uh i just think that from a release standpoint matt we probably just are a little bit ahead of when they're all going to hit so if they aren't here by wednesday pretty much the majority by wednesday if not a few stragglers by thursday i'll be very surprised and to the paul miller version done i believe by our man andy blackmore full marks that thing looks absolutely amazing so please check out dailysportscar.com because if you like old military style liveries well i think this one's going to make you very happy good stuff uh Eamon barnett is going to the six hours for the third straight year his question here is will mazda get it together and finally win this season i love your run by the way about the lamont race coverage well <laughs> thanks Eamon. uh i'd prefer not to rant but yeah bad um I do believe they're going to win. I believe they have come very close. I believe on occasion they have continued to make mistakes that have taken them out of contention. I believe they have also received a little bit of bad luck here or there. They just need consistent momentum. That's a one thing that I know that's probably also the, the duh obvious statement of the show so far, Graham, but you know, we have, if we look at, say, the entry with Ollie Jarvis and Tristan Nunez, which is currently the highest place to the two Mazda Team Yost entries, we have two races where they finished in quality positions, that being Long Beach with a fourth and then Mid-Ohio with a second. The, uh, the second entry as well is one where you say, okay, uh, the one with Jonathan Bomarito and Harry Ticknell, They've had one race with consistent, you know, consistent. They've had one race so far of the five where you could say, great, they had a third, so they did finish second and third at Mid-Ohio. That's great. We know that a win seemed to be very possible at Long Beach. Instance of snatching defeat from the potential jaws of victory. Same again with Mid-Ohio. Uh, would say that Detroit was pretty much completely forgettable. Um, for the team with a 10th and 11th place between the two of them. So where things just happen to be yet again is with half the season down, five more races to go. I don't know if Watkins Glen would be the place where they win. It seems like they should going to Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, uh, a.k.a. Motorsport should be another place where they can win. Same thing with Elkhart Lake. Um, there are fewer reasons I can, can come up with Graham for them to not win one of the next three races than anything that should stop them. But that's been their story. Unfortunately, things we can't quite think of that would prevent them from victory seem to step up and prevent them from victory. So if they can get one or two races with a bit of consistency and build and build and not be constantly working from a place of being surprised, a wrong strategy call, a wheel falling off, something catching on fire, or just being outdriven at certain points, you know, it's there. It's there to be grabbed. That's a very different thing 
then we're able to say for the first year or the first year of that program and then even last year it wasn't looking super reasonable at most rounds we're at a stage now graham to close where half a season in half a season to go mazda should close with two wins if not three based on pure potential in the maturation of this program and if they don't i'm going to be just raising both hands again saying what what why (laughs) why didn't you there are no excuses left to not win well let's uh, crack on with the mazda side um and kevin perez frederico asks for dpi 2.0 might multimatic brand the next chassis chassis as a lola multimatic it would be nice to see the lola name back especially with mazda love the idea just from a heritage standpoint but Multimatic is not in the business of selling Lola's. They're in the business of promoting who they are and what they are. So, yeah, I just don't see that. If I happen to be working for them, I would vote against that every time. I think, if anything, we have a case where Multimatic, bit of a powerful but weird name that doesn't mean anything, but it sounds really good, to me at least. I think they just need to keep trucking down the road Graham with making well, their brand something that is more well known despite owning the rights and etc cetera, etc cetera, to Lola uh, I also just think enough years have passed to where you know we just don't really I don't think most people think of the Lola name or have an attachment to it who are still really super active in the sport uh, yeah, I think it's going to be some interesting stuff coming from Multimatic. I get the impression, MP, that a bit of a brand building, public brand building, is beginning to get a little bit of headway. There are some moves in the UK with the new manufacturing plants uh, for their race programs. We know that they're involved in the production of the uh, Valkyrie Aston Martin um, race cars for Hypercar. They're building the uh, the Ford Mustang GT4 cars, and they have, as we'll come to later, uh, an uh, well an announcement to come next month. Let's, w- let's wait till that that question comes up. Yeah, and sticking we'll, still. Well, I'll just also Sorry. cover off here. No, no, no. I'll just also cover off, Kevin, on the Multimatic DPI. That is something that has been designed as a Multimatic, meaning. It was not something designed as specifically a brand X made for brand X. We know that it has been kitted out and designed to accept the Ford twin turbo V6 that's used in the Ford GT that it builds. And that if Ford decides to go forward with a DPI program as early as 2020, that can all happen. But just again, I think it's an important note to make that, Multimatic has designed, call it a, I don't know, mid-next generation DPI, right? They already have the Multimatic Riley Mark 30 uh, that is in use right now with the Mazda RT24P, but they've come up with, you know, a follow-up design to that that can be pressed into service. And if it is Ford, great. If it was Mazda, I'd say great. If it was pick any other brand, from what I know, they penned and have a, a design that could be used, you know, by whichever manufacturer wants to attach its name to it. If Mazda continues with uh, the 2.0 uh, model as well, I don't know if that would be 
an evolution of this uh, currently, you know, waiting to be brought to life design or if something all new would be done? Again, I don't have answers to that yet, but I just do think it is interesting that Multimatic has done the work to make sure that they're ready to go instead of, hey, we just got the call yesterday. Now we need to put down the very first design lines in CAD. So pretty smart on their part. Well, come on, still yet more around uh, with Mazda as the theme. Luke, uh, Luke Filipponi says, uh, hey, gents, realize Mazda gave up on their diesel prototype a few years ago, but are diesel and other alternate fuels completely off the table in DPI? Is this part of any discussion for DPI 2.0? I've heard that this has been a discussion, Luke. I don't honestly remember, so this is just a failing of my own. I don't honestly remember if that has continued beyond initial discussions. Hey, should we allow, not allow, what should we do? Hydrogen, you know, let, let's just throw a lot of things around. How wide of a scope do we want to make DPI 2.0 in terms of power plants? So that is something that I need to catch up on. Might be worth doing a little article on that because I know hybridization has become really the central topic, Ram, of what will differentiate 1.0 to 2.0. But this could be an angle as well. I'm not sure where they might fall. Um, I well, think- bear in mind the, the, the shift that IMSA announced with more green initiatives coming. It could be quite interesting, couldn't it? Yeah, and just knowing that simplicity tends to be the thing any BOP-based formula strives for. Hey, we're already accepting we're going to have differences, but let's not get crazy. Let's limit them. It's these kinds of areas, Luke, where this is something where folks would lean towards saying, all right, so no, it's all going to be some form of pick the number E10, E20, E85. We're going to stick with one fuel, and that then rules out the alternates. I don't know, though, if that is indeed what IMSA is leaning towards, so I'll have to ask. Let's go in a different direction. Mike Hogg asks for some news breaking just the last 24 hours. News of the new North American distributor for Aston Martin being announced. Do you think they'll do a better job than the abortive attempt by TRG a few years ago that only resulted really in a single GT3 run by themselves? I am needing you to take this one, Mr. Goodwin, because I, in the last 24 hours, have been tending to other things, and I actually need to learn from you what it was. Uh, well, I think the, the answer is it's CSJ Motorsports. Now, this is an organization, I gather, that has a background somewhere other than motorsports, basically construction areas, but their main uh, motor operandi is logistics. It is about uh, transportation logistics service for uh, potential customers across the whole of the continental United States. And that is what uh, Aston Martin were looking for from a U.S. partner. The initial um, distribution uh, deal, it covers the new Aston Martin Vantage GT3 and GT4 cars. Uh, it is a fresh start, they say. Direction of co-principals, uh, Kai, uh, sorry, Cy Jarry and Susan Jarry. Um, they can be. Uh, present uh, in the series that we are describing here, but principally their their reason for being is to do what Aston Martin have been lacking in the North American marketplace, and that is to have somebody that fulfills the customer team's need to have parts available uh, quickly and in particular 
at and around those race meetings. So that's what's going to coming up. It is construction and project management. That is not a bad start from it. Uh, whether or not that is going to be the correct partner, we're going to wait and see, aren't we? Tends to reveal itself in fairly short order. I know we're getting down to the final few IMSAs, so we can get to the WEC Aslam ACO Elms category that's all yours. So where shall we go to close out IMSA? Uh, let's have a quick look at what we've got uh darren dupois mpgg how does all the news about hypercar affect imsa's daytona 24 hours or the events at detroit they're the two sports car events uh, that uh, darren attends uh, usually only go to indycar races i can't think of any way in which no. hypercar would affect imsa in any way shape or form going forward in terms of the events you might want to attend the one thing that I do know is with the decision by the ACO and FIA to press forward with Hypercar rather than joining with IMSA and making DPI 2.0 a global format is a number of manufacturers have done exactly what we expected, Graham. Those that there were a few newish or returning members to uh, the DPI steering committee of late that I think we're hearing and feeling the same thing that hypercar was going nowhere and was going to crash and that DPI 2.0 was going to be the thing. And therefore they wanted to get in on the conversations to help shape what those rules would be knowing that that's where they somewhat likely would be in the very near future in terms of building cars. And with the announcement that that indeed will not be happening, I have heard that a couple of manufacturers have said, oh, thanks, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're probably not going to be showing up at future meetings. We might still token, but in terms of real interest, hey, we've got Toyota, we've got Aston, we've, not, you know, we've had Glickenhaus, we've even got Bicolis, but this hypercar thing appears to be real. This is where we're going to invest our time going forward therefore i think the list of potential manufacturers coming in graham for sure has dwindled a little bit already be interesting to find out what the uh, the next IMSA. i'm not sure i agree i'm not sure i agree um i'll tell you why mp it's been a quite an interesting couple of weeks from this thing being you know dead on the table um, to being completely rejuvenated uh, in what seemed like days and a very short number of weeks. Yes, I think some compromises have been made specifically to get that second manufacturer across the, the line. But what that might see now is some very interesting things coming through in the background. Ferrari, yeah, who knows? I mean, what we now know, without a shadow of a doubt, is uh, a lot of the Ferrari uh, interest was on the GTE Pro Plus proposal. That, my understanding, was almost entirely an FIA proposal and was designed effectively to keep uh, Ferrari interested. If there's a reason for Ferrari to come, they'll come. Porsche, I believe, will come. If the BOP can be made to work and if the budgets can be kept under control for that first year, I think we will see Porsche back. Um, will we see a very large number of manufacturers? Part of me hopes not, because 
that they're in confusion lies and neither would I want to see the really strong underpinning of professional motorsport teams and uh, organizations uh, lose out on the biggest stages because we've got too many factories. It doesn't need seven, eight, nine factories. Three, four would be just peachy, thank you very much. And the same for DPI, as long as actually you've got a reasonably healthy customer marketplace. And I'm sure, absolutely certain, we are going to see customer hypercars, particularly from Aston Martin. Well, I think I might have either misspoke, you might have misheard me, but what I was trying to explain was that the confirmation of hypercar has led to a number of manufacturers already stepping away from the DPI table now that they no longer oh, sorry, have the I, option. I heard that as, my apologies, I heard that as stepping away from hypercar. My apologies, I missed That could I have been what I minute. said. I have no idea. I don't yeah. remember what I said five <laughs> seconds ago. But uh, from what I've heard, and this isn't just rumor, this is fact spoken by people who know, is there are a couple of brands that have already said, oh, okay, well, now that uh, – this isn't our only option now that the thing we were probably most interested in to begin with, now that it's going to happen, that's where we're going to place our time and effort. I've also heard and have heard this on fairly impeccable accounting that a certain president of the FIA has been very active on the good old mobile telephone to manufacturers you might consider smart additions to hypercar and laying into them very heavily saying in effect, if you're thinking about doing anything new in the world of sports car racing, where we participate, you better be coming up with a hypercar plan really truly laying the heavy, heavy arm of uh, FIA justice on potential manufacturers looking at something new to do or something different to do in the coming year or two, really laying heavily into them. Good old Monsieur Jean taught to make it hypercar or nothing. Isn't it funny how something can focus your attention um, when potentially that very large stream of revenue starts to potentially dry up and all of a sudden action comes forward. Funny that. Oh, well, thanks John. All right, brother, where should we go to wrap up IMSA? Let's go to uh, it's a, it's a slightly different question from Brett Ross. Question about the penalty for the turn of BMW at Detroit. Is this one you know about, MP? I believe so. Uh, surprised to hear it had to do with the camber setting. Does the rule book mandate setting, or can the tire manufacturer mandate that setting for a given track? So he very much enjoyed the updates from the Mon from myself and Stephen Kilby. At the moment, is drowning his sorrows after a crushing defeat for England's cricket team this afternoon. Oh, well, sorry about the cricket side. Uh, from what I understand, this is very much of a tyre manufacturer and series technical department working together to come up with minimums and maximums that are allowable. And so... Based on what I understand, this was just a basic missing of that uh, of that parameter. Nothing too crazy in that sense, although I think it's absolutely insane for anyone to write a rule that tells any team what suspension settings they can or cannot use. Nonetheless, since this is in the rules and this is something that folks agree to and they show up to compete, 
this, as I understand it, was just a pretty straightforward, oh, we got that wrong, and we were penalized as a result. Sad, too, because <laughs> they would have started the race in a very good position, but then they did not. Yeah. And then the race went badly. Okay. Uh, we're going to move on. We're going to move on to the wonderful, wacky world of WEC ICO Aslam's Elms, uh, which is generally speaking my bailiwick. And I think you're going to be, um, well, shooting these things at me like I'm a duck in a firing range. You're about to get blown up. We're going to start off with Jeff Markowski, who says, Why can LMP2 cars compete in IMSA, but DPIs cannot compete in the FIA WEC? Tell us history, Uncle Goodwin. <laughs> uh, this one's got some history, hasn't it? So the original, uh, the original, original idea, because of course they're both based on the same chassis. Um, the DPI is based on LMP2 chassis technology that helps with the cost capping. And the original idea was DPIs would be able to come to Le Mans with the sole uh, change being that they must run with the uh, Le Mans kits. Uh, designed by the chassis manufacturer that's my recollection of it that went pretty radically wrong pretty quickly and there's all sorts of opinion and hyperbole that's attached to this one but cut long story short uh the aco and imsa fell out over the level of development that was being allowed for dpi and you know you can interpret it any which way you like but the reality was what the aco didn't like is that the DPIs would be faster than, in parentheses, their LMP2s. So that's the basis of where things went wrong. Why can't they uh, compete at the 24 Hours of Le Mans? Because there is not a class for them, and because at the moment the 24 Hours of Le Mans is oversubscribed. We had a record number of cars this year. There were other worthy cars left on uh, a reserve list. Uh, I think we had probably at various points six or seven reserves that were not used, and there were others waiting in the wings beyond that. Could they be in the future? Well, here's where it gets interesting. With Hypercar now coming on stream, and I know there's some more questions on that later, a little later in the show, uh, we get towards a kind of performance envelope where we could get to the stage where that might be quite an interesting question to revisit when we get beyond the 2020 calendar year into 2021 uh, for Le Mans uh, and certainly beyond that with DPI 2.0. But the moment, the answer is for right now, um, IMSA have an LMP2 class that used to be included in the DPI prototype class. They now have a standalone class. Um, the ACO with the ELMS and the WEC do not currently have a class where DPI fits. That's as simple as I can make it. I'm going to go to Matthew Briggs. I might be able to help with this a little bit. It says, BLP sandbagging. If the ACO suspects a team of not being completely honest, then they should be able to stick a respected safety car driver in the car for a few hot laps. Car set up in qualifying mode, driver having signed a non-disclosure agreement, etc., they should then definitely have a good data set. Is that a problem solved? Question mark. Just say this, Matthew. I love the idea of it. I've thought about it before myself. Hey, we need to have one driver benchmark vehicles and give true and accurate data to the series, to the whomever that is judging BOP. That's the smartest way of doing things. We know that that happens often in BOP series to start the season. 
But in terms of on a regular basis going into a major event, uh, once the season gets rolling, that's not always the case. I love the idea. I also know that as someone who has spent the majority of his life working in motor racing, as someone on teams, as a mechanic, race engineer, team manager, even team owner, uh, I can think of all kinds of interesting ways to give a single driver my car in qualifying mode and do a variety of things that would make it perform below its optimal peak to then give me the uh, the argument that I want to wage with a manufacturer. I'm sorry, with the series. Say, oh, but see, and we're a quarter second off. And your guy was in it, and he was giving it absolute full stick. See? And in reality, I mean, again, the issue here, Matthew, is despite trying to remove all variables, anytime you have a team of 10, 12, 20, 50 people, they're going to be able to come up with something. And it's going to be every team, every manufacturer coming up with something to hide an advantage. So absolutely right. While I love the idea, uh, it'd be a wasted exercise. Let's go, uh, Graham. Let's see. Let's go to. All right. We're going to go to tennis. Tennis. Let's play someone write that down. It's Dennis, but I said tennis. Uh, Dennis uh, Porhiniak, and I might have just murdered your last name, but I haven't done that too many times lately, so maybe I'm overdue. says, resubmitting my questions from the last episode. Graham, do you know if there were really two slow punctures with the number seven toad at Le Mans, or was it the pressure monitoring issue that caused two unnecessary pit stops until the team figured out it was a false alarm all along? says they had another alarm after the second pit stop, which they chose to ignore. It was a faulty system, uh, but a slow puncture in the wrong tyre. So I've heard it. You know, we talked about this last week. Um, I've heard the kind of the conspiracy theories. I'm not buying it. Um, I'm not buying conspiracy theories here. I think it was a genuine mistake. Uh, Are there individuals capable of that level of conspiracy? Of course there are, but I just don't see it here. I just don't see that at the end of a very long season uh, with, you know, uh, a team that has played a team game. Have they favoured one car? On occasion, yes, they have. But the reality was the championship was won. No, of course, Le Mans wasn't won, but that same crew uh, won it last, the other crew won it last year. Um, I just don't buy it. Uh, we are, uh, my understanding is it was a wiring fault. It was a wiring fault on that system. And yes, we know that those systems can be, uh, can be, well, suspect at times. Uh, so it does leave open the question, why did they not just change all four tires? It's really easy. Well, I'm sitting here, you know, in front of a laptop, um, you know, uh, in the comfort of my own home, and not being part of a team that until last year's Le Mans 24 Hours had never won and had fresh in their memories the absolute nightmare of what happened uh, on the very last lap. Um, do I think there's a bit of mild panic? Yes, I do. Do I think there's a couple of individuals involved in the team that probably were going to have to explain themselves to the the unlucky crew? Yes, I do. But you could hear it in the voices. Utter defeat and defeat, I'm afraid, at their own hands. So, uh, no, I'm not buying conspiracy theory. It was a fault on the car. Uh, Toyota very, very nearly for that car at least, well, in fact, specifically for that car, uh, won 
the Le Mans 23 hours and 55 minutes again. Couple here I can help with. Again, just trying to get through as many questions as we can with about 20 minutes left in the show. Bruce T. Hill says, theoretical question, how much slower does a Ford GT go carrying an additional 400 milliliters of fuel? Seems like carrying extra fuel, but not enough to get around the lap would be its own penalty. Uh, It it has no effect, Bruce. It truly doesn't. Think of it this way. Uh, Drivers have their drink bottles in the car. Those go in full. This is the equivalent of all the drivers taking you know drinking what half of a pepsi half of a coke name your favorite beverage uh or soda drinking half a can of something like that before they get into the car and carrying that extra weight in their digestive system it's not going to be the thing that makes any real difference let's go to ryan terpster again so going back to lamar for a moment is there a certain performance standard am drivers must meet to be licensed and compete and he also asked, yep. which I'll, I'll grab the final one. You take the first. He says, do you think that other P2 or GTE AM teams will try the strategy Ben Keating laid out last week on inside the sports car paddock by backloading the AM driving time? And that's a case where he had Felipe Fraga and Yaron Bleakmullen do the first 15 hours of racing. They also got were had some very fortunate timing on uh, cautions and where they caught them and such, but effectively they use their two quote pros to assemble a very big lead. And Ben then had to manage it. Yes, absolutely. Ryan. And that's a thing when Ben was saying not only in our, our podcast, but also the written piece that I did, how he could never repeat this and was so disappointed that the strategy he came up with ultimately, uh, you know, a disqualification was involved. A lot of that dissatisfaction, Graham, is because he knew <laughs> this is one of those things where you go, I can only do this once because there's probably going to be a lot of teams saying, thank you, that's our 2020 strategy at Le Mans. <laughs> yeah, on the other front, uh, Ryan, the answer is yes, they do have to meet a minimum standard. Uh, there is a grading of international licenses and every championship Uh, every major race has got a grading you must meet so yes there is a minimum standard of license you must meet um in order to uh take the start of the grid for the uh, le mans 24000 for that matter the fiwc imsa elms and more or less everything else so yes absolutely your license is graded mark wylage says could toyota or has toyota given any hints as to selling their hypercar to any customers, Graham, or is it going to be all one works team and no selling of those hypercar models? That's a really interesting question. That's a, one of the things that's gone away in the regulations is that uh, this, this proviso that the hybrid system uh, and the factory teams must be provided at a particular cost cap basis to customers. That has gone from those regulations. Now, you would ask yourself the question, we have two takers for a hypercar, Aston Martin, they don't have a hybrid system. Tota, they do have a hybrid system. So who's lobbied for that? You would tend to, it would tend to indicate, wouldn't it, that Tota probably are not keen on having their tech in customer hands. Um, I am hopeful that what we'll see with hypercar as it matures, as I hope it will, that we will see more customer cars emerging from 
whether or not it's the current teams, and there will certainly, I believe, be uh, customer Aston Martin, at least one and possibly more. Um, and I hope we'll see customer Toyotas as well. Let's wait and see. Oh, by the way, the, uh, the other thing to say is a uh, lengthy conversation with Jim Gleckenhaus. Um, was that in our Inside the Sports no, Car this week? No, that was so good. I've ah. saved it for a separate catching up with episode due out here like a that. little bit later this week. That's fine. I will say what, what amongst the very interesting stuff that Jim covers there is uh, that he intends to fund one of the two cars. Uh, the second car will be a customer effort. So uh, Glickenhaus still very keen uh, on following through on what they've told us from the very earliest uh, points. They were first to commit to this publicly uh, that there will be a two-car Glickenhaus effort. One of those will be a customer 007. James Counter says, MP, after the reveal of the Toyota Car Car Mule, you knocked it for its looks and not being exciting enough. Do you think that's entirely fair? Whilst it's not as awesome as the Aston Martin Valkyrie, that's probably going to be the high water mark for the most awesome looking car. Surely every car set of regulations has awesome looking vehicles, like the Ford GT, he says, and less awesome cars. BMW's M8 GTE really didn't do it for me. I wouldn't have said it if I didn't think it was fair, James. I realize this is the game of opinions, which nobody wins. But yeah, I how's this? If we did not have the Valkyrie, if I'd never seen it, I would probably be even more upset knowing that if that is going to be the, I guess, the the primary example the world will know of is hypercar because Toyota is indeed not just by size the biggest manufacturer but also does the best job among any currently in promoting its involvement i mean that's just something where i fear abs would fear absolutely it's just to me completely lacking compelling any and everything uh you would have to be a true toyota loyalist to look at that and go oh my gosh i would say that thing's amazing it doesn't look better than any current gte am or pro car i am actually someone who maybe i'm a bit different than others i love the bmw m8 gte and all of its girthy uh, amazingness and its weird outer space sounding engine and the fact that it's comically 27 times bigger than any other car competes against against um i love the uh, way 27 that, times slower yeah i, I but, uh, hey 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 um i i'm just being really honest here if we're launching a new category and it can be awesome and the most visible widely covered uh you know or widely recognizable name being involved poops out something that just looks like a club racer yeah so i'm thankful we have the valkyrie as the quote high water mark even the even what jim glickenhaus is bringing and if he were to bring nothing other than the car that he raced last weekend at the ring Mm -hmm. it still looks phenomenally better than whatever the toyota car car thing is so my hope just in terms of dazzling people's eyes and wanting to come out and see these new this new formula that breaks new ground and marries the road to the racetrack even more i really hope they have a rethink because that you know, we've seen ugly, my friend. Um, 
as someone who lives in a country where the dear late Don Panos occasionally pumped out cars, which you just kind of crossed your eyes and said, oh, my God, what happened? Uh, I'm not saying it's that. I'm just saying it's a little bit too far in that. Oh, man. It's a bit vanilla. Yeah. It's a bit so, vanilla. That's my take, James. It's not so much anti-Toyota at all. It's just new category. Let's wow people. I don't think that's going to wow anybody. I'm going to run through a couple of these pretty quickly because I know we're running low on time today. Stephen Gates says, given Red Bull's heavy involvement in the Aston Hypercar program, will Seb Wamey be a shoe-in for a drive there? Still Red Bull's uh, F1 third driver. Uh, he's under contract to Toyota. Now, watch uh, the coming season, by the way, for uh, where Seb's priorities against his contract are going to be. I think there's going to be an interesting few changes. We know we're likely to see, not to see uh, Sam Bird back for Ferrari because of his formula recommitments. And I think you're probably going to see Seb Wamey miss a couple of races for Toyota. But do I think he'll stay as a Toyota driver? Yes, I do. Do I think he's going to be part of the Aston Martin setup? No, I don't. Um, good one here from Rob Chalmers. Car car related again. Pruitt Goodwin Motorworks is thinking of entering hypercar, even though their bread and butter uh, road cars are dependable, fun, mid-sized hatchbacks and FUVs. Would you go full prototype car car or make a road car car car? What would be the advantages going through all the pain of making a road car, cost of modification, various markets, etc., etc.? What would you do? I'd go prototype, hundred percent. I'd go. I'd do. I'd, I'd actually do exactly in this instance what it is that you're going to hear uh, later this week. Uh, Jim Glickenhaus tell you that they're doing, which is it will be a prototype-based car that he will then adapt for to be an extreme road car come track day car. Um, and I think that's the correct way to go if you want to win races. What about you, MP? Now I'm thinking about how do I get a couple of body and white Mazda CX-9s off of the <laughs> uh, off the good old production line and see what I can come up with there. A full carbon CX-9. It already has a small oh. displacement turbo four. Uh, all right, got this quite, is yet another bad idea. Quite, really bad quite idea. Quite an imposing kind of, yeah, the kind of frontal area thing might become a bit of an issue. Well, but think about this. We would certainly save time on driver changes because we just throw all them in the, in the proverbial boot. We'd actually open up, you know, hit the little button, the remote button that beeps and opens up the rear lift. We would uh, just throw the other two drivers in the back and, you know, um, maybe would throw in a few jugs of fuel so they can kind of refuel while, while going. It'd just be about tire well, management. Economy- well, the economy from the CX-9, um, we do need to get some sponsorship from them. Surely they wouldn't need, to put, wouldn't need to stop. Look, I'm sure there is some form of military angle we could come up with, some sort of, <laughs> of fly-in, you know, overhead refueling type thing, whistling down the Mulsanne. Look, man, anything's possible when you aren't constrained by rationality or reality. Uh, what, what other ones would you like me to throw at you? Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to go very very briefly for Thomas Alexander. Why so few entries allowed at 24 hours of Le Mans? Managed to fit 16 cars per mile to the Nürburgring, uh, which would be over 130 at Le Mans. I think the answer is it is pit garage space, and that is effectively what uh, they believe is going to be safe for uh, the track. They've got two very, very different tracks indeed. We will, I'm sure now, be moving to 65 cars for 2023. That is almost 20 cars up on when I first started covering this race just uh, just, under, well, just around 20 years ago. So 
Um, I think actually the 60 to 65 car kind of range is about right for the Le Mans 24 hours. Uh, you know, I think 200 was probably too many for the Nürburgring. Uh, 156, as we actually had starting this time, um, felt sort of about as much as really sensibly you could go with. Yeah, that makes sense to me. All right, uh, we've got general and fun left with about seven minutes to go. I would say let's do this. We haven't had a chance to spend much time recently in the category of fun. So let's do that to close, and I realize I just temporarily stole your job as the official category chooser on the week in sports cars. For those who sent in questions that were not asked, as we always say, please Send them in again for next week's show or the one following if we don't get to it. But if you really want us to answer, please send it in and we will do our best to make sure that happens. I'm going to grab Don Gregory's question first because, well, it's all kind of awesome and it's also uniquely something (laughs) I've covered a little bit. He says it's 1993 and Paul Newman, James Garner, Steve McQueen, and Patrick Dempsey line up for the Fastmasters winner-take-all shootout at Indianapolis Raceway Park. Who wins? Uh, he's. Let's see. Well, there's a lot of things that are kind of clipped here, so it's hard to read a little bit of this. Um, wow. So Newman, Garner, McQueen, Dempsey. I'd go with McQueen, and not for any nostalgic Lamar, any of that stuff. I just, while I did not see him race from what I have watched, through film what i have read and just learned anecdotally of all the drivers listed fear was certainly not a friend he was just never a real issue and pushing limits and boundaries i think that's he's the one who i think would lead the most laps in terms of winning mm, i think garner crashes just say that right away Dempsey, I think, would be very good. Dempsey never scared anybody, though, in terms of outright pace. I think Paul Newman might be the winner, Don. I really do, because he could be very fast, but he also kept himself just below his breaking point. And so I think McQueen would be super quick and would also lead a number of laps, but would probably push things too far and crash. I think Garner would just crash on his own. Uh, and I think it might come down to Newman and Dempsey, and I think Newman beats Dempsey 10 times out of 10. Uh, let's see. I'm going to throw Tim Same's question to you. Which sports car racer needs their own musical <laughs> biopic, and who oh. would you get to play them? Uh, it's got to be, without a shadow of a doubt, Christoph Bushi. <laughs> uh, without a doubt. Uh, musical biopic, what would, who would we get to play him? Billy Joel, probably. No, uh, no. Yeah, Billy Joel no, gets to play it. No, one of the Gallagher. No, one of the Gallagher brothers uh, from Oasis, oh, who, which is the oh, one yeah. who's always fighting and punching. Whatever Both the, of them. Yeah, okay. Well, I was going to say, whichever <laughs> one of the, the punchy, <laughs> dim, bold uh, Gallagher brothers from Oasis, for sure. But here's the cool thing. Like when you watch you know, a movie or whatever, and they've got a little kid. And then you look at the credits and realize, oh, well, that's a family of triplets, and they just kept rotating them in and out as one acted up. We kind of have that option with the Gallagher brothers. So whoever played Bushu using a really bad 
by way of England French accent, as that Gallagher brother started to act up, we could kind of put him on timeout and grab the other one to stand in. With a so. Manchester accent, that would be fantastic. Oh, you could call it the Passion of the Christoph, couldn't you? <laughs> or, 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 the, or that, that Morgan Freeman, the Bushu list. Ah, the Passion of the Christ off. Yes. <laughs> oh, we've got it. That is a t shirt oh, right me. there. We're getting, oh my God. Passion if, of the Christoph. Blackmore, I know you're listening, Andy. We've got some work <laughs> for you. The Passion of the Christ off. Um, yes, standing on. The official soapbox that he sponsors, uh, Bushu's Hammer Emporium. Oh, this is the best. All right, we just got a couple minutes left. Let's see, where else should we go? Um, well, Alex, Alex, Alex Ike Miller and James Counters are, pr- are both pretty good. There we go. Well, which, uh, go for it. Which retired, which retired driver you wish would come back and start racing again? And on the other side, which current driver needs to hang up the helmet? Huh. I, I mean, do you want me to take the first? You take the second, or the other way around. You're you're the nice guy uh, on the show. I'm usually which, the jerk. So whichever way you want to go for it, whichever way you want to go for it. You be nice, and I'll be I'll be the mean guy. Good cop, bad cop. So who would you like to see return? I'd like to see if you could turn back time. I think we go back and see yet another musical reference. All right, share. I I would like. Jamie Malo to have made better choices in life. Oh, um, good on you. He was he was a an awesome awesome race driver and made some bad choices and that robbed us of a true talent. Um and I regret bitterly the fact that um you know I'm afraid his substance abuse got in the way of what was a glittering career and I I'd like to remember Jamie Malo for the good reasons and not the bad reasons. I, yeah, and this one's going to be super obvious. I'm I'm hoping the laws of nature just made it so after Lamar. Tracy Crone. I love yeah. you, man. You are a sw- I, I, true sweetheart of a guy. You have raced for so long in so many amazing vehicles. You have a lifetime of stories to tell about that time you're at the place and did the thing and the such and such vehicle brother you've just written off too many cars at Le Mans as well uh you just it's become it's become expected for and the car is wadded into a ball because tracy didn't see the car coming got confused and did something uh, and also with his height and the fact that it seems like whatever whatever he races the cars are just getting faster every year you know it's not like he can really pull his knees back too much and prevent injury just due to it cramming that big frame into vehicles i'd love to see tracy call time uh, what i'd love to see maybe as a farewell and i'm not saying it has to be a race but some sort of farewell in that green livery of his name whatever it is uh himself um looking at his his frequent co-driver mr Johnson. i'd love the two of them to see the two of them maybe pick something even if it is a race just a regular imsa race to say hey we're going to do this one more time at a place that's fairly low risk but yeah uh it's time yeah i i heartily agree and for all the right reasons if you are listening tracy or this is repeated to you we say it with absolute respect completely um 
and you know that's that's it. it's the, the, you know we we are capable at times of a bit of mild cruelty. Not on this one. Uh, it's been a ma- major contribution as a team owner. Let's not forget back in the day with the Lamborghinis and moving through into his own uh, driving career. So I hope absolutely exactly the same reasons and exactly the same logic as you. Well, let's go to the final question of this episode, somewhat abbreviated. We do this to you every now and then. It offsets the really long ones like we had last week coming out of Le Mans. James Counter says, which driver uh, that you haven't shared a communications booth with do you most want to commentate alongside? James says, keep up the great work, guys. Uh, well, I'm privileged to actually sit alongside Alan McNish. Who, uh, uh, you know, fan. are we yeah, going to yeah, end the show on a lie, Goodwin? Are we going to end the show on a lie? <laughs> really, man? But, but um, we did have, uh, we, we touched on this last week, um, Tom Christensen came in for a bit of light relief from his Eurosport duties and actually made me a cup of tea, which was jolly nice of him. Um, but <sighs> Thomas Enger, I think Enger would be enormous fun. I think Anger would be enormous fun. And I think Darren Turner, um, who is, of course, closer to the end of his career than the beginning, would have a huge amount to give in terms of the GT racing discipline. It's not something we generally tended to see. Very privileged at Le Mans this year to share the booth with three drivers, all of whom I've got the utmost respect for, one of whom was making his debut on the mic. Uh, we had Peter Dunbreck, who's been a, a part of the uh, the ACO TV team for some years now, and it's the 20th anniversary of the infamous accident. But the newcomer this year, and a man who actually I thought did brilliantly well, was Jamie Campbell-Walter. And his first uh, time doing TV, he was excellent. But no, I think someone like Thomas Enger, I say someone liked him. There's no one like Thomas Enger. It would have to be Thomas Enger. Um, and Darren Turner. Darren's been a part of my racing life for almost the entire time. I've been a fan, let alone a uh, professional journalist. And I think he might well have a bit of a future doing what I do, um, you know, uh, and hopefully alongside me for a short part of that at least, uh, once he finally hangs up his helmet at Aston Martin Racing. Two Scots and a Dane come to mind, James. Alan McNish is one. I would, again, he and I have seemingly done everything but share a booth calling radio or television or otherwise. Um, I would love to share a booth with we, Alan, because I think we would have a lot of fun. But there's also a theme to my three choices. We would argue like mad and that would be fun that's the thing i would look forward to the most because agreement gets old right oh yeah hey boy yes you're right hey that's wonderful no it's disagreement and firmly entrenched disagreement and alan and i I believe can do that when have some fun the other one would be dario franchiti who he and i love each other to death boy when we don't see eye to eye there is no bridge in that gap and so that would be fun to play out but the one most of all would be Tom Christensen because while I love Tom and he and I have done a lot of you know things together over the years you want to talk about intractable that man sees the world one way and is curious why 7 billion others don't see it his and so the thing I love about Tom is I think I've mentioned before here on the show whenever we've done things like videos together He's the guest. Hey, man, want to do a little thing here? Yeah, sure. 
And then he turns into my director, my producer, my PA, the the writer, the you name it. The editor tells me how to do everything. I would love the fact that we would be in the booth as uh, as call it equals, and knowing how headstrong he is and how pig-headed I can be, I think that would be a blast. I'm not saying I would get called back to do it a second time, Graham, but I could see some delightful arguments uh, between he and I, and that'd be a blast. I'd love it. I would have a lot of fun. I might be getting my, putting myself out of work after one event, but nonetheless, I think it might be comedy gold. I tend to agree with you. I think he's uh, he's great fun to be with. Now the pressures of the racing career are behind him. Uh, I think it's a mark of the quality of that team that there's so many of those guys that actually do make for very good company um, uh, away from the, the the racing suit, the hands device, and the helmet. But uh, uh, you and me both, I'd uh, be privileged to spend some time uh, having some good knockabout fun with well, the the king of Denmark, I think I'd like to call him. Um, and we, we go from there. I think that's it, isn't it, MP? We're done. D-U-N, done. Graham Goodwin, thanks for taking some time. I really do hope you get some sleep here. I will not be in Watkins Glen, unfortunately. I don't think I'm going to be on a plane anytime soon to cover a motor race. But uh, believe it or not, the world goes on and doesn't really seem to matter. Nonetheless, I do love doing this. This is the one thing I can say we will be doing every week. The Week in Sports Cars, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and DailySportsCar.com editor, Graham Goodwin. I am Marshall Pruitt. We are saying farewell. Look forward to your questions coming in for next week's episode.